Welcome to today's Pro AV Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm Sean Heath, and today I have a chance to have a conversation with Eric Larson, the Director of Marketing for TIAC and Tascam for the Americas. Eric, how are you today? I am doing great. Did I hear you say Sean-versation? Yes, it's a branding effort. I kind of like it. Oh, epic. That is awesome. I kind of like that. I get lucky every once in a while, just throw stuff out there, see what sticks. Hey, um, so I'm really uh, interested as an audiophile myself and a, and a guy who worked on and off as a club DJ for about 20 plus years. I'm really excited to, to talk to you today. Do me a favor. Give me just the short, you know, espresso version of your career in sound and how you wound up where you are at TIAC and Tascan. Very easy. This is the job that I wanted as 15-year-old me. In my um, early career in college, I worked in a retail music store full line here in Northern California. I was convinced I was going to be a rock star, played in the band, played through clubs all through the Bay Area. And then uh, that didn't work out, but I kept playing and recording. I eventually went into Silicon Valley into the tech market, working at companies like Creative Labs on the original Sound Blaster cards way back when working at 3D effects for graphics cards, working a lot of times doing marketing for Pinnacle Systems, and just a number of tech firms. And about two years ago, got word from a buddy of mine who had stayed in the music industry that Tascam and TIAC was looking to expand their marketing department. I was currently working at a startup in Silicon Valley that was quite simply running out of funding. The stars aligned, and I got to get back into the rock and roll world. It has been an awesome couple of years so far. You know, I, and I, you, I'm a, probably a few years older than you, but I bet our paths, you sound like someone who sees things the way that I see them. And you've seen trends throughout your, your career, whether, as you mentioned, whether you were in sound or you overworking in graphics, video cards, and, but you've always kind of kept an eye on what's happening in the audio industry. What kind of trends have you seen lately that have really caught your attention? It's, it's interesting, and, um, and this is similar to my guitar collection, which were used when I bought them, and now they're vintage. I think it's the same sort of thing. If you stick around long enough, you start to see the trends, and you start to see things moving. One of the things that I think is very interesting is a resurgence in people that want things with knobs and buttons. In the, on the TX side, in the consumer space, I think we saw it with vinyl records. I think that a lot of people realize that sometimes it's nice to pick up a record and you know, read the cover art and, you know, read the liner notes and put the vinyl on and go through all that. If you look at what's happening in the music world, guitars are coming back in a pretty big way. There is an explosion in modular synthesizers with tons of knobs and wires. And people are looking for hardware recorders again, where they can reach over and press the button. I think for so long in the computer world, the cool factor that you could do everything virtually in software with a mouse was kind of hip and everybody did it because they could. But I think that people who make music and listen to music kind of miss physical tactile things. And I see that as a big trend in the past couple of years. And I don't see that. I don't see that changing. You know, I always felt that when it came to musical equipment, uh, like when the first dual deck um, DJ rigs were coming out where they could have jog wheels that were set up to look like little miniature turntables. When those first came out, they were flimsy, they were lightweight, they were plastic, they didn't really have any heft to them. And as newer versions came out, those jog wheels started getting heavier and heavier, and they started to have more resistance like a traditional belt-driven turntable. And I always found that fascinating. It seems like 
there's a degree of comfort and confidence that comes with that analog tactile experience. I agree 100%. I, I think that's a fantastic example because I think a lot of the designers early on said, okay, let's just emulate that because that's what people want. I don't think they realized that people that grew up with their 1200s, they were used to a physical, like you said, you know, they're used to a little bit of pushback. They're used to having to push against the motors and they developed their capabilities as artists and their touch and feel by having that resistance. Once the instrument started to respond to the touch in the way that a real turntable did, a lot more people were able to really bring that muscle memory over from one, one platform to the other. And I, th I think that's exactly what it is. I love the, the elegant blending of analog and digital technologies. And let's just talk about turntables for just a, for just a moment, because TIAC puts out some turntables and you look at them and they're just so simple and beautiful. And you think, oh yeah, I, I totally need one of those. Even though I don't have one tenth of the LPs that I used to have when I was a working DJ, I could totally use one of those turntables. And it's almost like you mentioned, as we continue to get more and more technologically advanced, it still feels like there's something missing. And I think that analog aspect creates a certain type of connection, just like you mentioned with guitars. There's a certain tactile experience yeah. that is an integral part of sound. I think so. And I think it, it really depends on the, on the scenario. And I can give you, I think, three examples. If we're talking turntables, uh, the turntables we're making now, and I, I appreciate the compliments, I think we do make a very elegant turntable. And of course, our competitors are doing some fantastic work in that space as well. But our turntables do have standard old school RCA outs. You can run them into your phono preamp. We do have turntables with phono preamps built in that just give you a line level because a lot of the stereo systems these days just aren't looking for a, phono a phonograph anymore. And on most of our models, we do have a USB out. So you can very easily run digital into your computer or your audio rig. And you can do that just for playback or if you do want to make digital dupes of your records. And I've got some vintage vinyl, some just bizarre you know, Moog stuff from the late 60s, early 70s. And those records are not in great condition, but I do want to be able to archive them. So I think it, it works out real well to kind of cross paths that way. The thing yeah. that I love most about turntables that has not changed is the fact that there is still a physical stylus. There's still a needle that's required as part of that technology. I There was a joke in my family, my grandmother always used to say, that I got all of my childhood vaccinations with a phonograph needle. Mm -hmm. Ha, 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 my grandmother's so funny. Um, technology has advanced so much that when I told my 15-year-old daughter that joke, it wasn't funny because she did not know what a phonograph was. We had and I thing. love the fact that that technology is so simple you can't improve on it. Now, you can make better cartridges, but it's still a record. Right. It, it, it's, it's similar to playing darts. You understand exactly what the goal is in two seconds, and you spend the rest of your life trying to get good at it. Absolutely. And I, and I remember when my daughter was younger in school, we made a phonograph with a, a paper cone and a needle. And, you, you know, you simply drag the needle across the album and you hear it. And one of the things I think is interesting is... You know, you go through the endless debate of analog versus digital LP versus CD, what sounds better. I'm not even going to come close to having that argument with you. 
But what I do find is if I spend five minutes picking out an album and then I walk to the turntable and I carefully take it out of the sleeve and I carefully place it on the on the turntable and I carefully drop the needle on, I'm focusing. So I know it's going to sound better to me because I'm paying attention in the same way that the lights in the movie theater go down. So you pay attention to the screen. You're focusing attention. If all I do is grab my phone and just turn on a song real quick. I'm not really getting in the mood, so I just don't know that my brain listens in the same way. I think that's a I think that's a very eloquent point. I think there is definitely some truth to that. It's interesting how video, you know, 4K, 8K, 97,000K, whatever the next resolution is going to be of video, it just mm-hmm. you can see it. It is improving. Uh, a a 50 inch 4K TV today has a better picture than a 1080p monitor from five years ago. It just does. It's simple. There's no room for argument because it's a very, it's not subjective. It is objective. Look at this. Does it look better? Boom. It's better. And sound doesn't operate that way. If it's completely digitally created, there's a certain nature of a sound wave, in my opinion that makes a huge difference. The way that sound wave was first generated makes a huge difference, especially when you're talking about live music. I say, I believe that there's definitely something to that, but if you use the video analogy for just a moment, if you were to take one of the new, the new beautiful 4k TVs and your source was a VHS, an old VHS, it's still going to look like crap. You know, the the TV is going to show you a very good representation of what the source material is. If you play a DVD on it, which was early MPEG-2 encoding, you're going to see all of the aliasing when there's a slow pan across the sky. So it's really a matter of making sure that you're dealing with content that was produced for that platform. I think it's the same thing with digital audio. If you listen to an extraordinarily high-end audio system, but you're listening to heavily compressed MP3s, they're only going to sound that good. As you move into 44.1 CD quality or you move into higher resolutions like 96K, 192K, or now some of the new 1-bit DSD recordings that are out there, because the content is being created at a higher resolution and, in fact, through different digital manipulations and digital types of recording, the sound quality and the soundscape and the 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 breadth of the signal that you here is dramatically different and it it is the same as watching something on vhs versus 4k that's a that's an excellent um explanation Uh, so as a musician which you are who also has this technical background and as a thought leader in the industry what do you see as i mean how does this resolve itself the desire for analog versus the capabilities of digital. How, where do you see us going? I think we're to the point now where we don't have the limitations we did in the past. You know, you talk to people now in the, in the recording world and they're going, oh man, I really want to get that fantastic tube mastering compressor and I want to run through a tube preamp and I want to go to analog tape because, oh my gosh, man, it just gives me the sound. And then you talk to people who are actually in the studios back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you hear horror stories about having to rebias the machines on a daily basis, machines that didn't play back in speed, tubes that constantly needed to be replaced, noise floors they couldn't get past. And all of the things now that people look back on with nostalgia were a huge pain in the butt at the time. So I think now we're to the point where 
the technology and analog versus digital has gotten effectively so easy. And I'm using finger quotes, you know, on a podcast here, so you can't see it, but it's effectively become so easy that people can now use, they can make those decisions based on artistic need as opposed to the fact that that's all they have. You know, that's a good point. I think uh, I read somewhere that the definition of nostalgia is the significant passage of time to help you forget how terrible things were. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I was thinking about high school the other day and it's fantastic. And then I picked up my daughter and I, you know, it all came flooding back to me, all the, you know, just the cold terror of what high school is like. But, you know, I've been out of there for so long. I look back fondly, but at the time it wasn't fun at all. Yeah, I can't say that I had that experience in high school. It ha- I, I haven't been out long enough, and I've been out a long time. Uh, so let me ask you this question as we as we kind of wrap this up today. I'm kind of curious. As a musician and as an audiophile, someone who appreciates the art of sound, can you tell me the favorite venue that you've experienced a show in and it doesn't matter what type of show and can you also tell me one of your favorite concerts that you've seen and where you saw that for the yes i surely can for the venue i can give you two specific uh, examples um one and these these were both recent the reason that they're their favorites for me is i was recording both of these shows so in both cases i took one of our um DA6400, so I'll I'll drop a product name, but that's basically a single space digital recorder that will record up to 64 channels. So in both these cases, I took one of those, I connected it to the front of house mixing board with a single cable, single digital cable, and I was able to get a dry recording of every single mic off the stage isolated. One was the Jessica Lynn Band. That's a country band out of upstate New York that we're working with. They do fantastic stuff. And her and her band were hosting the Jessica Lynn Christmas show in Westchester, New York, the Paramount Theater, a beautiful old school theater. When I got there that day, it was it's right off the Hudson. Um, There was the first snow of the of the season was falling. You know, they had Christmas dancers. I mean, the whole place was decorated. It was just a beautiful experience. And it was an incredible show. This last week at the NAMM show, I went to the polar opposite and we were at the House of Blues with the same recorder and I recorded a three and a half hour hardcore metal concert of the Metal Allegiance, which was three opening bands and kind of an all-star band as the headliners. And it was just phenomenal to see, be in the room both times in, in the Christmas show at the Paramount was a room full of people who just, they loved the band. They were hearing all of their favorite standards. These guys were playing Christmas tunes from 50 years ago. And then the exact opposite was hanging out for the metal show in a room with probably 5,000 people. They knew every tune. Everybody was in there grooving and moshing and just digging it. And it was that it's, it's the power and the connection you get in both areas that was just phenomenal. And then going to a favorite concert for me, it's always going to be the 1989 concert where we saw the I saw the who for the first time live. Wow. So that was one. Uh, we slept on the sidewalk for tickets back when there were record stores and you bought paper tickets. We went to the Oakland Coliseum. It was the Tommy tour. And I got to sit there and watch Townsend and Entwistle and Daltrey bang out Tommy, uh, you know, a cu- couple hundred yards away. And it just completely blew my mind. And I never understood anything. I didn't understand how you could connect with an audience at that scale, at that depth. I was completely blown away. 
I've I, I have to say I've always thought that the bands that are the most successful are the ones that can connect sonically and emotionally as a mixture with their their listeners. They're, if that emotional sort of thing's not there, you're just making noise. I would agree. I mean, if if there's not a connection, why show up? And the connection could be whatever it is. You know, I mean, I, I know that there are a lot of bands out there, a lot of people that go to see them, and certain things click with you, certain things don't. But if there's not a connection, there's no reason to get in the car. Some people love the costumes of Guar, and other people like Dave Matthews. It just takes all types. Exactly. And as long as you, as long as those guys are giving it their all, I mean... I'm a bit of a Guar fan myself. I think it's a heck of a show. Somebody put in a heck of a lot of work to get there, and they thought about it. And they're doing their best to give their fans the absolute best show they can provide, the best value for ticket money. And they, they really do care about what they put out there, and it's just fantastic to see. Today I've been talking to Eric Larson, the Director of Marketing for TAC Tascam for the Americas. Eric, thanks so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you. This has been a hoot, and we should do it again. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Have a great day, my friend. You too, sir. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.